In this episode of the Deming Institute podcast, the new economic study session number three from October, November 2017 is released. The system of profound knowledge is discussed, revealing the importance of reviewing your organization through a lens. The namesake for our new show, The Deming Lens. All right. This is Tim Higgins with the uh, New Economic Study Discussions, and uh, this is the October and November 2017, and this is the third session, as I recall. <laughs> we hit chapters one and two in the preface and the forward in the first session. We hit chapter three, introduction to the system, in the third session, and this session is is uh, focused around the uh, chapters four and five. Four is a system of profound knowledge and five is leadership. So Deming offers us a, a system of profound knowledge. And he offers that, that that system of profound knowledge will provide an outside view. And the outside view from Deming's perspective is a necessary condition for changing a system. For him, a system can't understand itself. So when you looked at this, the idea of a system of profound knowledge, then he talks about it being a lens. And I think it's important to note that he does, even though it has four components, because it's a system, it has an aim, a purpose. And the four components are interdependent one depends on the other, they each depend on each other. And as a result, it's not really four different lenses, it's a single lens. And it's looking at the interactions by putting on that lens that allows you to see things that Deming doesn't think you can see any other way. So what did you think about the four elements and their interactions? You can approach it if you take it from any one of the elements and look at what your your situation is. Because I mean, what what he says is it provides a map of theory by which to understand the organisation that we work in. Um, so it doesn't really matter which point you start with each other. Yes, it, it it's while it's not four different points, you can enter the system from any one of the points. And one of the keys Deming keeps harping on is that you can't understand one element without some understanding of the other elements because they're interdependent and interrelated. And so what you're looking for, he offers is not to be an expert in any one, but to be sufficiently skilled in any one of them to see how it interacts with the others. And those interactions are where you're going to get insights that don't come, at least easily, any other way. The, the trouble is that the time it takes to learn about it in order to apply it is often what people miss because they're looking for, well, what is it I need? I need to know about variation or I need to know about system. I'll try that. And it's only once you start using all four that you get the full picture rather than just part of it. 
Yeah, and it's not that you wouldn't learn something applying the, these things separately and looking at whatever decision you're making or looking at what's going on in an organization or, for that matter, looking at a, at a news article. But what Deming's offering is there's far more power in using them as a unit, a lens, so that each element of the lens informs the other elements and you're able to see more things than you can see. It's different from the sum of the parts. It's the product of their interactions. That's something Russ Acoff reminds us over and over. The performance of a system isn't the sum of the parts taken separately. It's a product of their interactions. And so what Demings would like us to do is use the elements and look at the interactions. How does psychology interact with understanding variation? How does it interact with appreciating a system? How does it interact with creating new knowledge? With the, the plan, do, study, act cycle kind of a thing. In his preliminary remarks, he talks about the fact that they're interactive. And he also points out that thing, things interactions have recognized that an inspector can find depends on the size of his workload. So what do you mean? He's doing his job right. Doesn't matter how many there are. Well, the reality is there's a difference in what he can do when he's got a bigger workload than when he's got a smaller workload. And that understanding the variation you're going to get and the system that you've put in place for the inspection allows you with a little bit of understanding not to beat up the inspector when there's variation in performance without looking carefully at how the system and the workload you gave them is contributing to that variation. I think I think that that for me goes to the 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 fundamental point of what the what the switch in thinking that once you apply the, the, the SOPK as a lens and you learn yourself and then you can then look at using the 14 points or obligations is that it's that that change between managing performance compared to managing the system in order to free up the potential for better performance so that people have a better life as a result of it. Yeah, it's, it's amazing when, when you move from, you got variation in performance, and generally what moves you is it's substandard, so you want to go study it. And, and when you move away from the blame, what's wrong with that guy, and start looking at what in the system generates or causes or allows the performance variation you're getting, you get much better insight into as in what to do. And, and perhaps there's something having to do with the individual that you need to address, but frequently a whole bunch of the performance that you're seeing is a function of the system. And if you'd like better performance, you need to do something about the system. And if you do something about the system, not only does that one person's performance get better, but you would expect other performance in similar kinds of tasks to get better with other people. So it's really a force multiplier to be able to look at things from a system perspective instead of an individual point perspective. 
I've, I've observed over the last few years there's been this big uh, kind of rise in, in thinking around uh, behavioural uh, psychology or, or behavioural science uh, and, and with the psychology aspect of, of the SOPK. Um, I, I think there's been this, this is a series of biases in the human mind around looking for simplistic solutions and kind of you know jumping to, to conclusions um, that probably explains a lot of the the tendency to have rapid fire blame. Uh, so I think part of that that value that, that the system of profound knowledge brings is being able to again take that step back and be able to appreciate you know the psychology and, and the other aspects as well to you know try and better understand root cause or better understand you know kind of what the options are. Yeah, there was <laughs> there's a an interesting observation when Bill Bellows was doing one of his sessions with a group of people. And they got into profound knowledge and psychology and talked to them about motivation. And somebody raised his hand and Bill said, what's your question? He said, well, the psychology part, that only applies if there are people, right? <laughs> so evidently this guy thought there were organizations that didn't have people in the moment. Bill, Bill admitted that he was right, that if there weren't any people, psychology probably wasn't all that important. <laughs> That's an interesting concept of self, even if you're the only person in the uh, the organization. Exactly. I mean, I mean, I guess there can be an organization without people. I'm just not sure how it came about. Demi, also in uh, in the the this this chapter, he gets into the elements, and since he already introduced his system, he spent some time reiterating the, the part about interdependencies. And he has an example on page 97 of level of interdependency. And he has a bowling team way over there on low interdependence and an orchestra and even higher independence than an orchestra he has as a business. And I, I can tell you, now I don't know how much he knew about bowling teams, but clearly quite a bit because when I was on that bowling team as a teacher, I can't remember, I think it was Tuesday nights we bowled, and it was a team of five, and everybody formed teams of five, and every Tuesday got together and bowled. However, as a team member of my team, if I couldn't be there Tuesday night because I had some other obligation, sometime during the week before the Tuesday, so Monday, Saturday, Friday, if I could get somebody on the other team to witness me bowling, they could use my scores on Tuesday night, even though I wasn't there. Wow. So the inter interdependency is pretty low on a bowling team. And he has it pretty high on an orchestra, but he has it even higher on business. Why do you think he sees business as having more interdependencies than an orchestra? Your, your roles within an orchestra are easily understood and clearly defined. Mm, yeah, and if he's got a sheet of music to play to. Say again? And I would argue more rigid, more strictly defined, limited. The pianist doesn't take over the cello in terms of the operation, yes. the very assigned roles. And, and you have less outside influence than in a business. I mean, there's an audience that's on the outside, but the music is not going to change in the middle of what you're doing. And the audience 
could change because some people could leave and others could come in or they could start booing or hissing or something. But it's I, I, I see in a business way more changes going on external to the business that have an impact on the business, which makes it tougher to manage. Are you familiar? It's also like I'm sorry. I was going to ask if the if anyone's familiar with Putman's book Bowling Alone, Robert Putman's book. I don't know that one. It's a very interesting analysis of the implications and costs associated with no longer socially or communally. Uh, participating or associating with one another. And it's a little bit ironic that Putman's use of the bowling team as an analogy for the importance of interrelation is on the lowest extreme of Deming's examples of interdependencies. But Putman's basic premise really desperately need to be associating in one another's presence in in um, regular context. Um, he does a very amazing statistical evaluation of the implications societally and to individuals' health even when they fail to be in a communal association. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting. I discovered listening, Peter Senge was, was a presentation to some teachers and he talked about a guy who would, had to make a presentation in business to to the guys at the top some level of management or executive and and he was making his presentation and he told peter he said the problem he was having with his presentation is those guys that were in the room and gals he said they don't see me peter and peter said what do you mean they don't see you he says they don't see me and so Peter inquired as to exactly what that meant. And in his society, his culture, when you pass somebody, the greeting is, I see you. Wow. That, acknowledges, that acknowledges that I'm connected with you in some way. And so what he was saying is in that room, I wasn't connecting with any of those people. I wasn't, it was like I wasn't there. Now, Deming offers that in a system, the obligation of any component is to do what it can to help the performance of the system overall. That's its obligation. And what he gets nervous about is what he sometimes refers to as destruction of a system where one part of it decides to do what's in its interests and as a result, tends to defeat the system as a whole, makes it worse. And he calls that suboptimization, calls it destruction of a system. And so from Deming's perspective, the focus of any element ought to be on how do I help the system get better at what it is trying to accomplish given my, my role, my, my place in the system. Tim, the last time you spoke, you talked about the... If we're looking at what's best, everybody be focused what's best on the system long-term, isn't that a great aim for everybody to have? And then train them accordingly? 
Yeah, the, the 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 Deming talks about in the in the chapter on systems is that the system includes the future. If you don't include the future in your system, you, you, it it may not last very long. <laughs> and so looking looking out into the future and how far into the future do you look? Well, a lot of things go into making that decision. It's not uncommon for some Japanese companies, quite a few of them, to do 30 and 50 year plans. It's unusual for an American company to do more than a five-year plan. So it's those are different horizons. And Deming would offer looking out into the future expands the system the further you look out, which means it might be more difficult to manage the system, but it offers way more opportunities than, than, than shortening the horizon to the point where from Deming's perspective, the horizon is the quarterly report you have to give to the SEC if you're a publicly traded company. And he points out that no amount of success in the short term guarantees long-term success. That's like, it's like when we used to do confidence training on um, obstacle courses and you had to, you know, walk along a um, uh, a, a pole or a or a a wall that was you know two bricks wide, but at a height. If you look down at your feet for each step you take, you overbalance. But if you look out ahead of you, you actually um, are, are are more balanced. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I hadn't thought of that, but I think the uh, the tightrope walkers do the same thing. They're looking at, across at the other end of the tightrope is where they focus and that allows them better balance than looking at their feet. The most immediate thing, <laughs> the most immediate thing is the next step and looking at the next step doesn't necessarily help you balance and might interfere with your balance. You could, you so could you say as well, if, if you're looking at the safety of where you're going to, that's better than if you look directly down, if you're between two skyscrapers or whatever the tightrope walk is doing. Yeah. It's where where am I headed? <laughs> What's the risk up there? So also in this chapter, he sort of moves through the chapter taking the elements and he takes system and he talks about that. Then he talks about knowledge about variation. And he offers his, his, when he talks about having knowledge of variation or understanding variation, what his push is to recognize there are two kinds of variation, two types. One kind of variation is inherent normal to a system, predictable within limits. So if I've been driving my car for, you know, 12 months, 15 months, I might have some evidence that it's going to get between 28 and 32 miles to the gallon, an average about 30. And that variation is predictable within that range. And sometimes it's 28, sometimes it's 29.5, sometimes it's 28.7, sometimes it's 30. It, it varies randomly within those limits. And that's one kind of variation that Deming calls common cause because all of the gas mileage comes from the same set of causes, even though the numbers are different week to week. But then there's another kind of variation that's distinctive from
from the common cause variation. He calls it special cause variation. It's variation over and above what's normal, and it indicates something is acting on the system that's decidedly different from what normally and typically operates on the system, and it makes the system unpredictable. So for Deming, being able to recognize when whatever you're looking at, the variation in performance, the variation in measurement, whatever it is you're looking at, the variation, being able to distinguish whether it came from a common set of causes or whether it's a special cause is an important distinction. And what he offers is, he got all of this from his study of Schuhart. Schuhart's the, supposed to be, I guess he's credited as being the, the father of statistical process control, which interestingly enough, isn't about statistics or about process control. It's about figuring out whether you have common cause or special cause variation present. And Schuhart's idea was, I don't want to chase things that are common cause variation unnecessarily. And I don't want to ignore things that are special cause variation. So I want to signal when there's special cause variation so I can go take action. And when there's no special cause variation, if I don't like the performance I'm getting, I need to change something fundamental. I need to redesign the system or the process in some way so that instead of getting 28 to 32 miles to the gallon, I get some other number, some other range. So knowledge about so, so the caution, go ahead. Not to the caution is not to overreact to common cause and not to ignore special cause. Yeah, it's it's first to recognize or to try to characterize the variation. So the, the classic example is if you've seen him do the red bead experiment, um, you know people are dipping a paddle in a mix of red and white beads and pulling the paddle out, and it's absolutely random. They have absolutely no control over how many red beads are gonna come out. Right. He pretends it's a red beads of defects and you count them up. When you look at it over time, the variation in performance from, I think there's six willing workers and they work for four days. So you get 24 data points. When you plot the average and, and look at the range of variation, what you find out is all of that variation you see is normal and predictable within that system. Not a single person, in essence, did any different, performed any better or worse than anybody else, even though they all got different amounts of red beads they pulled out. It was all part of the gas mileage of that system. And if you don't like the gas mileage, the average number of red beads or the range you're getting in red beads being pulled out, you need to change something fundamental in the, in the system. And so there are different actions you take. If you've got only common cause variation present and you're unhappy with it, you need to change something fundamental in the system, preferably on a small scale to see how well it works before you change the system overall. On the other hand, if you're getting a special cause variation, so instead of getting 28 to 32, you get 22 miles per gallon one week, your system is now unstable, unpredictable. You don't know what's gonna happen next week. Maybe it's gonna stay at 22, maybe it's gonna go back to 28 to 30, maybe it's gonna go somewhere else. You don't know. And so Deming offers that not being able to predict what's gonna happen next, having an unstable system means it's gonna be unmanageable. 
So what you need to do is see if you can find the causes. First of all, you got a signal. Go see if you can find something that's evidence that it actually is a signal and something abnormal. Some cause is acting that normally isn't acting or is acting way more than it normally acts to give you that result. And then your obligation is to try to do something about that so you can restabilize the system. And he points out that getting rid of special cause variation, while it will make the system predictable again, it's not an improvement. If your car was getting 28 to 32 miles to the gallon, and then suddenly got 22, and you figured out what was causing it to get 22, and you put a fix in place, when you're done, the mileage is gonna be 28 to 32. That's where it was before. Getting rid of the special cause variation didn't improve anything. It just returned the system to its predictable state. Wow. But it, and, and it's also the it's also the vital thing that what you learn from that from the psychology point of view is there's no point blaming people for their individual performance within an unreformed or a, a um, an imperfect system, and that that's the dead end. That 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 isn't the the place to direct your management because that will just cause more frustration and won't address it. You have to look at what are those what are those sources of variation, and it's not the people. Yeah, the people are an element, but frequently they're more like a victim of the system, and and not to be victimized. It's just that the system limits their performance, and if the performance of six individuals over four days runs you know, on average about the same, and the range in any one of them is within three standard deviations of that average, what you can say is that that system produces those results, and Deming would say rewarding any one of those people for a particular day of performance might be like rewarding the weatherman for a nice day. It had nothing to do with that person, just as the nice day had nothing to do with the weatherman. Now, and, and then it links in that if, that if you're going to seek to improve, um, you need to know the difference. So you need to, to have an appreciation or an understanding of variation in order to take the appropriate action. But then you need a theory of knowledge as to what it is you're going to do. Otherwise, you can end up making things worse. Yes. You, you get this this great interaction between the variation and, and the psychology and the theory of knowledge, how do you build new knowledge and, uh, and the system, it's, it's, it's remarkable. And I, 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 I always find it interesting that when people, a lot of people know of Dr. Deming's work having to do, for example, with statistical process control and What's intriguing to me is Deming at least three times, as I recall, four in the New Economics says the most important application of this idea of distinguishing between common cause and special cause variation has nothing to do with the production floor, has everything to do with managing the people. <laughs> so that you're not kicking people in the butt for the gas mileage of the system. And you're not rewarding them for the gas mileage of the system. 
but you're also not ignoring something that's a special cause, somebody who's in need of special help. What, what I think is great about it is if you can approach it from that point of view, if you find somebody who's performing way below average, the fact is they're doing something different from everybody else. Otherwise, they'd be getting very much the same results. If there's something different they're doing is because of a lack of training or a lack of understanding, and you can train them or help them understand how to handle things differently, they will get better and their performance will look like everybody else's. And another neat thing is if you've got somebody performing way above normal outside the distribution on the high end, if you go to that person and figure out what he or she is doing that's different from what everybody else is doing, because that person's getting substantially different results, he or she is doing something different. If that difference is something that the others can be trained in, you can improve their performance also. So by understanding whether you've got special cause variation giving you way better performance than everybody else, or special cause get, giving your performance way worse, approaching it from that perspective of understanding what in the system might be generating some of, might be causing some of the variance in, in performance allows you to improve the performance of the system overall. It's a very different approach. But also, also as humans, they're likely to share it if they're not being rewarded based on their performance in comparison to other people, but in their contribution to the overall benefit of the system and, and the optimization of the system benefits everyone, they're, they're more likely to let you know what it is. Yeah, if, if, if my performance is way better than, than, than everybody else's, <laughs> and because of that, I'm gonna get a raise, my chances are running off. If my raise is a competitive thing where Either I get the raise or some of you get the raise, but there's only so much money. So if I want to make sure I get a raise, stemming offers, people will behave rationally given their perception of the situation. I perceive that my raise is dependent on me performing substantially different from the others. Why in the world would I share with the others what I'm doing to get that performance level, even if I know what it is? So theory of knowledge is the next chunk of uh, that Deming talks about. And theory of knowledge, you know, so it's also called epistemology, but it's the idea that knowledge can be built. And Deming, Deming's idea is knowledge is built on theory and, and gaining experience and then co comparing the experience to the theory and thereby learning. And the learning may require you to change your theory, may require you to to decide you're going to keep using the theory, but you might try to expand it into it, into an area you haven't tried it in before to see if it's still valuable and useful in that new area. He talked about, you know, two-dimensional Euclidean geometry works great on your table, but if you're trying to build a bridge that's a mile and a half long on the surface of the earth, the surface of the earth is curved. And the rules associated with two-dimensional geometry don't necessarily serve you well on a mile and a half bridge. They'll do fine when you're building your house, 
because it's not there's there's not much curve in the 60 to 120 feet that your your house dimensions are but if you're going a mile and a half that might be a difference and so Deming's idea about how to expand knowledge is to have your theory collect evidence decide whether the theory is useful out into the future and then continue to expand the theory to a point where you say well, it's not good here and that allows you to create a new theory for that new situation and it, there's an interesting point as well that what what that does as well is if you are if you're talking about changes in a in a normal team or a traditional way where it's opinions it's the force of argument or the force of personality that can carry the the argument but if you are doing it on scientific basis of of a theory and evidence and a prediction then it, it's not who you are or who you are within the, the the structure or how forceful or how loud you speak at the the conference table it's how right your how right your proposal is yeah what's the evidence and that that that's a different approach to things that sometimes is troublesome because folks have their gut feel hunch and instinct and don't like data that might not agree with their gut feel hunch and instinct they somehow believe that their 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 feeling about this their 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 look out into the future is much more reliable than data and Deming offers even when you have data you have to use theory but because to use data you have to have a theory in order to know what data to collect to validate or invalidate the theory. So whether you have data or not, Deming thinks that we need to be operating out of theory. And he offers in some cases, you will never have data. He, he quotes Lloyd Nelson in an earlier chapter uh, who said, the most important figures needed for the management of any organization are unknown and unknowable. And yet we have to manage them. And Deming offers an idea of unknown and unknowable having to do with the benefit of training. So when you look at the ledger, the only thing you can see is the cost of training. It's very hard to point to the return on that investment. So he asks, well, why does management keep training people if they can't point to a a, a measurable return on investment. And he says, because they're wise and they operate out of theory. The theory being, if we train these people, we're gonna get better results than if we don't train. So for oh, Deming, theory is paramount and evidence is certainly valuable, but in some cases you're not gonna have evidence, you're gonna have to operate on the theory until something hits you like hit Chantelier the rooster and let you know your theory's wrong. Somebody had a if comment. That logic is true. If that looks true, how come training is always the first thing that goes? How come you have a that says training's worthwhile and then when things go bad, it's the, the first thing they call even though they really need it. Journey. Theory on I, did, I didn't catch that. There were, you were cutting out, Chris, so I couldn't quite understand everything. 
how come when training training is the first thing to be cut out when something goes bad, when start going bad? If the theory is there's value in it, why would they cut that so quick? Is there any thought on why this happens? Um, that's just short-termism, isn't it? It is short-term. Thinking long to go, they understand that there's value in the training. Then all of a sudden, things get tight. They, they. Um, well, it, they can't. It's it's easy, relatively easy, especially in North America with the way the SEC and the, and the stock market and everybody else look at the figures that come out of a company. It's very easy to get trapped into thinking. The figures are what you need to be worrying about. And Deming offered, if you try to manage your company by figures alone, you will soon have neither a company nor any figures. Because the figures don't tell anywhere near the whole story. And frankly, they're misleading in some cases. And so Deming's offering us an opportunity to work out a theory, theory of a system of profound knowledge, for example, and then look at what, what you have and say, well, my theory on this variation is it's coming from a common causes. All right, so if we don't like that level of variation, let's try a plan, do, study, act cycle. What are we going to change in the system? Let's see what we can try, what evidence we can gain that that change is making things better and do it on a small scale. And then if we like the results and think it would work on a bigger scale, then change the system for the company as in, in its entirety and move on and hopefully have made a gain. But yeah, in the short term, if you're worried about survival in the next two or three months, it's really hard to spend any money on the future. Was it Peter Drucker who quoted, um, you, you can't, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it, or you can only manage what you can measure? Because I think that that can be quite a poisonous idea, uh, particularly in light of Deming's comment about um, uh, so much is, is unknown or, or unknowable. Yeah, there there is, because you see the quote all over the place. In fact, there's even a miss, near as I can tell, a misrepresentation of Deming that you will see all over the place. They, it's attributed widely on the internet, that impeccable source of information, that Deming said, in God we trust, all others bring data. I can't find that anywhere in his work. I've talked to a lot of people who worked with Dr. Deming. None of them remember him saying it. And in fact, when he says we have to learn to operate out of theory, it sounds like he's not really, he would not have said something like that. I, I did a lot of work contacting people who had that saying on their websites and asking them if they could point me to where they got that so that I could look at the context in which it was said and try to get a better understanding. I have bumped into three guys that wrote an online book and they were at Stanford. And it was interesting in their book, that's why I called them, they, they said, in God we trust all of this bring data. And they said, ironically, 
it's attributed widely to Deming, and we looked all over the place and couldn't find any evidence that Deming had said it. Uh, but we found uh, we found another professor, I think a Stanford professor, who might have said it. So we asked him, and he said he didn't say it. So they said we, we don't have evidence Deming said it. And this professor we know didn't say it. I did some more research and found something very much like that, having to do with a doctor years ago. I can't remember the year, but he said something very much like that. That you know, this guy that's claiming that he's having all kinds of success with this, you know. In God we trust, he needs to bring me data. But I've never found anything tying Deming to that statement. But it is a common belief that if you can't measure things, there's no way to manage them. And clearly that's false. How many of you manage, how many of you measure your your love level of love relationship with your kids and your wife? And yet I'll bet you manage your relationship with your kids and wife wives rather and significant others rather well. I would argue that management without prediction is more precarious than management without data. Because even if we're to use your example of, you know, a relationship, you would interact with a person you're in relationship with the prediction of a hopefully a favorable outcome. I don't think most of us at least in the relationships we choose, um, act in um, act out methods or behaviors that are going to predict, be predictably bad as a rule. We try to not do that. So I, I thought his discussion of in the theory of knowledge that management is prediction, it seems is more critical than management uh, relying on pure data. Yeah, management's not measurement and not control, it's prediction. Well, you can predict, you can manage. This is, I think it's interesting in this chapter too, under under variation where he, or under theory of knowledge, where where the physicist is a mathematical physicist. And then he tells you there's no true value of any characteristic that you can that you can observe or measure because depending on how you do the observation depending on how you do the measurement that has an effect on your results so you don't really get a true value of the characteristic you get the measured value and you might get an agreement that we're going to take the average or some other value because when you measure it you're going to get several values in uh in out of the crisis, he has, I think it's eight times over the years they've measured the speed of light. And sure enough, over those years from the 1870s, I think is the earliest one, you've got an average and a range of variation of the measurements with each one of the techniques they use. So the question is, is there a true value for the speed of light? If there is, we don't know what that true value is, but we can agree to a value, we can take the, the, the method they used in 1928 and decide the average of the method of the method they used in 1928 is what we're going to use as the value, the true value of the speed of light. But as Deming points out, it's not a true value, it's an agreed to value. And then he brings up operational definitions, which are also agreed to values. And important. 
Because if Charles is going to sell me a blanket that's 50-50 wool and cotton, and I send him my $120 for the blanket, and he sends me a blanket, and the top half of it's 100% cotton, and the bottom half is 100% wool, I'm going to be mad, but he's going to say, hey, you said you wanted 50-50. That's what you got. Just fold so it in the middle. Yes, exactly. So having an operational definition that says it's 50-50, and here's how we determine it's 50-50, this is the measurement technique, is, is very useful. But as Deming points out, don't be fooled into thinking you're getting a true value. You're getting an agreed-to value so you can do business. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think, I think that's, a, that, that, that's a, another... Um, significant point that um, we have this concept of the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And yet, once you go into it, it's it's what our perception of it is, and what the truth is is what we manage to agree as our shared perception. It's not necessarily something that you can you, you can get an absolute. Yeah. Especially if you consider when Deming got a degree, because a whole bunch of things Newton had to say were the truth. In fact, he called them laws. And come to find out, they may be laws, but there are more theories because there are a whole bunch of cases where what he was offering doesn't turn out to be true. It's true on one scale, but something as simple as the orbit of Mercury can't be explained using Newtonian physics. And you'd say, what? You have to you have to use some of what Einstein came up with that mass and energy are equivalent. And when Mercury's so close to the sun, when you're using Newton's idea that gravity is two objects tugging on each other, and you figure out the mass of the sun and the mass of Pluto and plot the orbit, you get one result. However, the actual measured result versus the result you get doing the calculation. They're different. And the explanation for a lot of years was there's some other planet out there we can't see that's interfering with the orbit, and that's what's causing this. Until they somebody recognized that Einstein's equals MC squared might play into this. So it's not just the mass of the sun, you also have to consider its energy. And when you use the equations that Einstein would have you use to measure the orbit of Mercury. The result you get in that calculation is the result you get when you look at it through the telescope. So, yeah, what 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 you think is knowledge, what, what you think is truth, is the truth for now because we've agreed that that's how we're going to deal with things. But is it the truth? It's not even clear what that means. I think he was. Go ahead. Uh, sorry, I think I think it's 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 also what is what is actual and what is considered to be actual. And I think it was Myron Tribus's um, example of uh, medical knowledge that what is accepted as being true can then be challenged. But the 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 and, and it was about Pasteur and Lister and, you know, um, 
wanting to sterilize things, but that wasn't what was accepted at the time as being the truth or being the absolute in terms of knowledge. Um, and and it, it was that thing that just because it's not what someone knows doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. Yes. And it also makes a distinction between information and knowledge. Russ Aikoff made a similar distinction in a lecture I went to in the early years, and then I, when I first bumped into his ideas, I went to a lecture here in Los Angeles, and he talked about data, information, what he called knowledge, and what he called understanding. And data were the individual raw bits of things. So if you're measuring something, measurement. Information was data that had been processed in some way. And, and what he called knowledge was know-how, knowing how to do something. And what he called understanding was knowing why something worked the way it did. And he, he called these things contents of the, of the mind. And, and there was a, a, a fifth one that he called wisdom. And he said, wisdom is the ability to recognize the, how the action you take today will affect things in the future. And he offered that the move from data to information to know-how to knowing why is, is sort of an efficiency thing and a natural progression. But he offered that a movement from understanding to wisdom was a quantum leap. It didn't just follow that if you had the understanding why that you would be wise, you would have wisdom, which is being able to predict the effects of an action today on the future. So Deming uses understanding a little bit differently. It's not, I mean, knowledge a little bit differently. It's not know-how for Deming. It's closer to understanding in, in Acoff's uh, taxonomy. But the point Deming's making is that information in and of itself doesn't teach anything. It's just information. I think there's a bit of a segue there, isn't there, into the plan, do, study, act cycle and how that gives you the opportunity to, uh, you know, to, to test, to prove or disprove and turn data more into knowledge. Yeah, it, it, having, as he points out, having data doesn't teach you anything unless you can, you, can, you can say, okay, I've got this data. What's my theory on on the thing that generates data that has this pattern to it. Without a theory, you've just got the data, you've got a pattern in the data, and you say, wow, that's fascinating, look at this data. But you haven't learned anything. So you need the theory, which is the plan, do, study, act cycle. The part of the planning is the theory, and you've got some of the evidence, the do cycle, if you've got the data already. You do have to question whether that data is actually useful is it is the system of measurement predictable and is the thing you're measuring an indication of confirming or denying your theory or whether it's totally irrelevant he also brings in psychology here and talks a lot about the the, the downsides of extrinsic motivation and he talked about over justification where somebody was doing something out of his goodness of his heart and you took, take it on yourself to reward him monetarily. For Deming, he says that's over justification. 
It's not that you, that means saying don't acknowledge that somebody did something special for you. So be careful about the way that you acknowledge it so you don't change the relationship. And, and he offers an example of a changed relationship when that young kid was decided because he liked his mom, he, he loved his mom, he was going to do the dishes. And the mom was so awestruck that he'd done that and she thought a good thing to do would be to reward him for it. And what Deming points out is she changed the relationship. It now wasn't a son doing something because he loved his mother. It was a son doing something because somebody, mom, was paying him to do it. And it affected his behavior. It was an interesting discussion. When he talks on page 111 of anyone that derives meaning from extrinsic sources of motivation brings detrimental effects to his self-esteem. Um, years ago when I was raising my young children, um, I tumbled across a book called um, Nurturing Your Child's Self-Esteem. And the uh, I think the author was Briggs, if I recall correctly. Her premise was that when we constantly praise our children and reward our children, we have them walk a tightrope of uncertainty. They live um, navigating this uh, need for constant praise to be validated as of value or of, of import. And um, we create an incredible tension and uncertainty for the child versus actually being fully focused on the child as, as an individual and simply celebrating who they are in general um, and, and you know, for the quirks and for the good. It, it rang true because I realized I had been raised in exactly that way, that my value was 100% dependent upon my over-excelling. And if I wasn't over-excelling in a way that was worthy of attention, all of a sudden I became uncertain of my own value as a person. Um, so I, I, I really appreciated what he was saying here. Fortunately, I read the book when my children were pretty young, and it changed the way that I approached my own parenting hopefully for the better. Yeah, I, I, I were, but having read Alfie Cohen, then when Brennan was growing up, I, I, I did things that I probably would have done very differently, not because I'm, 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 I'm a nasty guy, it's just because I'm ignorant. But, yeah. but Alfie offered something that I think is fascinating. He talked about his little girl running up to him who had just drawn a picture. And it's, he said he, he's got to resist the temptation to pat her on the head, sort of treat her like a dog and say, good doggy, good doggy. Mm -hmm. what, a, what, a, what a wonderful artist you are. He takes her back into the time when she was creating that so she can find the thing within her that made her want to do that in the first place. So instead of extra, it's coming from the inside. He says, wow, what was the hardest part of that for you? Mm. Ah, etc. What 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 were you feeling when you when when you started doing this part over here? So he takes her back into the experience, so she learns. Certainly, she got daddy's attention, which was part of what she was after. But sure. she's not dependent on daddy's attention for the validation. She goes back and says, "Yeah, I really liked doing that. Yeah, this was hard, and I overcame that. That's that's a whole different approach." Yep. 
It strikes me when we look at the four elements and, you know, the variation and knowledge, appreciation of the system of psychology that um, depending on the system that you are in and, and even to a degree your own makeup, your area of emphasis or your area where you may be struggling in these four components would likely vary. And, and yeah, having an awareness of that might be helpful when you're trying to actually implement these elements or, or you know, navigate these elements in a way that's more favorable to the system. Yeah, I, I would expect because if people, people are different and different things attract their attention. So I would expect somebody who's drawn to Deming's work to look at this and say, wow, you know, that psychology stuff's really interesting to me. So their approach is going to be from the psychology perspective, but that doesn't mean that they aren't paying attention to the interactions with the others and they gain way more by looking at it that way. Somebody else may come into it, they really like the systems thing. And so they come in from the system side and yet they see the interactions and interdependency with the rest of what's going on. And so they thereby gain that way. And I, I, I think that Deming offers, you don't have to be an expert in any of these, but you have, what you need to be able to do is have some modicum of understanding so you can use the lens to look and see where the interactions are and learn from that. And just as this, is, I bet you can get a PhD in any one of these subject areas and they're separate and different, probably offered in different departments in the, or, in the, in the school. And, and so you could have four different PhDs, one with knowledge about psychology, one with uh, very good at epistemology, and one very good about with variation, and one very good at systems. But that would be different from somebody who had an understanding of how all those things interact. And I'm sure somebody's preference will help, will, will sort of guide them as to how they enter into whatever they're looking at. But as Deming points out, you can't ignore one or two of the others. You have to look at the interactions amongst all four of these as best you can and learn from looking at it. And, and he offers the application of a system of profound knowledge, trying it out here, there, and everywhere, allows you to get more practiced at it allows you to get better at it and and you you and your understanding of it and the things you're looking at it will grow the question that chris was asking about training it struck me because of course i've you know i think many of us have seen that happen over and over again it struck me as um you know to a degree that impulse to give up training is reflective of of a hierarchical thinking and a lack of in some ways a lack of appreciation of the system because if you if you quickly abandon training especially of frontline or newer employees then you've biased for an aspect of the system and chances are, at least the way I've seen that play out repeatedly, the bias generally favors those in higher position, which is really not 
I suppose you could delude yourself into thinking that you were protecting the system by doing that, but rarely does it work out that way. I, yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm not even sure it's anywhere near as strong. In some cases, it might be a delusion, but in other cases, if if I'm an executive and stuff is going on and they've offered me four choices to help make things better, what Acoff and 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 Wharton found out when they did the study is whether consciously or unconsciously, the correlation between what caused the decision among the three thing alternatives offered, for example, the thing that drove the executives to make the decision, the thing that had the highest correlation was how whatever they implemented impacted their standard of living. <laughs> I'm convinced that they're not all, they weren't all sitting around saying, how do I get more out of this? I believe it's just like a Thomas Kuhn paradigm effect. Their view of the world includes them getting something out of it. So if you're looking at three alternatives and you're saying, yeah, they're kind of all the same, but this one I seem to be getting something out of, even if it's not conscious that you're making the decision because you're getting something more out of it, it's it's hard not for, for that bias not to take over. Mm. Yep. So having to do with a system of profound knowledge, what kinds of things, I mean, Deming talks about if you apply it to transforming Western management, the 14 points will follow naturally. And because he says that, I am led to believe, he, I, I have inferred from what he said, is that you can apply it to things other than the transformation of Western management. And I would offer you to think about how you could apply a system of profound knowledge to whatever you're looking at. Might be an article in the newspaper, might be a commercial on television, whatever it is. Be interesting for you to try that and see what kinds of things, insights come out of that that hadn't occurred to you before you tried doing that. It's certainly easier to try to apply it to something you don't have vested interest in that you're trying to make something happen. So looking at a news article or a, or a commercial on television or something else, maybe, maybe looking at something that's going on in the school might, might offer you an opportunity to practice and, and just see what kind of insights materialize or manifest from that attempted application. Has anybody tried to apply this anywhere other than at work and business and making improvements? Okay, I've made observations, but certainly I'm dissuaded from uh, taking at face value ever again the, the expression above or below average. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Indeed. I certainly treat data differently than I used to. So I'm I'm actually more interested. I think in the last year or so I've I've undertaken to teach myself more about understanding statistical process control and the relationship of variation inside of a system. Uh, so I've picked up Don Wheeler's books and I've 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 tried to make sense of it all to give myself that that insight, that foundation. 
but I find I use it anytime I see anything in uh, a newspaper or on a blog site. Uh, my first inclination is to dig into the data. Yeah, and 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 Wheeler is is really good. He, he studied he studied without Dr. Deming, but he also had a relationship with Dr. Deming for years. And Wheeler's stuff is really good. He's got one book that I think is particularly useful if you're in a corporation. It's Understanding Variation, the Keys to Managing Chaos, because it's a short book, I don't know, 110 pages maybe, and it's meant to help managers understand that all that data they get month to month, they can use that to understand where the special causes might be in their, in their operations, and they can use it to recognize where stuff's predictable and stable within limits. And, and it's not very complicated. Uh, we Here at Rocketdyne, they ran a course called Managing Variation as a System that included going through Wheeler's book and doing some of the exercises. Yeah, Wheeler's, Wheeler's got a lot of good application. He also offers that <clears throat> SPC is a way of thinking with the charts acting as a catalyst for the thought process. And he says, if you don't understand Deming's system view, production viewed as a system, and you don't understand plan, do, study, act, statistical process control techniques are of little use. Mm, good point. So what about leadership? Dr. Deming on page starts on 116, talks about a leader, and he, his, his idea of a leader what I find in corporate America, and not just corporate America, because I see it when we're talking about politics, local or national, there seems to be a, 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 a rather fuzzy definition of leader. So Boeing, when we were part of Boeing, Boeing had a, a leadership and learning center in St. Louis where people would go and they stayed there on site. It was a nice hotel, if you will, and took care of you food-wise and all of that. But you went there to get a week or, or two days or sometimes two weeks of, because it's a leadership and learning center, to do some learning. It's named the Leadership and Learning Center. Who do you think is expected to go there and is invited there routinely? Minutes. Say again? Managers. Yeah, managers. Executives and managers. Because the, equa the, the words are equated. Manager, executive, leader. It's all the same stuff. And Deming and, uh, and Acoff offer that leading, you can be a manager or an executive and a leader, but those are different things. And for Deming, a leader is somebody who has a transformational idea and a theory about how this this idea would be transformational. He feels compelled to make it happen, and he has the ability to explain what he's trying to do in simple terms, and he has a plan, a step-by-step -step plan to make it happen. That is a leader. And as an example in this chapter, out of all the people he could use in history to point to as an example. He chooses 
Philip Morris, is it? I can't remember. Is Philip his first name? No, it's Morris Hansen. He chooses Morris Hansen. What 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 do you think? Not that we know for sure, but what do you think some of the reasons are? That Morris Hansen is icon of leadership as opposed to anybody else he might have. Why Morris Hansen? Well, he was certainly innovative. You know, he he uh, he. He stepped back from the problem. He realized that uh, what was, you know, I don't recall whether he knew what the other approach was, but he certainly was stepping back from the problem and, and finding a route all of his own that had not been done by anyone and, you know, flew in the face of what the census was looking like before that with the Postal Service. So he had a vision, yeah. he had a plan. He, of course, uh, Deming, Deming worked with Morris Hansen, so he knew him. Work with things he knows. So as if you were decided Lincoln or Kennedy or somebody like that, one of the American presidents, Deming didn't know them, so that may be one of the reasons. Perhaps even the idea that Hansen didn't have any kind of a title. Yeah. It was, if you will, some guy in a cubicle. <laughs> I do like your point, though, that it is interesting to note for Dr. Deming's experiences and all the individuals he knew, you know, he could have picked anyone. And it is kind of a wonderful thing that he picked this individual. Yeah, I also like the uh, the irony that perhaps doing the the sampling they did didn't meet the letter of the law. <laughs> so you're supposed to count everybody. <laughs> and what's well, in, what's breaking. interesting too? Say again. Oh, I, I was just going to uh, say he he was he was breaking new ground because he was prepared. Right, he was learning some of the statistical sampling methods that were new at the time, and stood forward. Uh, he watched other efforts fail, and was able to, as you've said, he was prepared to present a plan and a methodology to explain. Here's a way that we can interpret these results with higher fidelity. And I thought it was interesting that he was looking at the routes of the um, mailmen on the the post office routes, and how that influenced oh, here's how I can get information about what's happening in each household um, with respect to employment. Uh, that's something that's, that, I mean, it's astonishing that it had happened at that point in time because that's solving a number of different problems at, at very high levels. Yeah, a lot of brilliance in that. And, and brilliance on the part of management that recognized that that was a valuable idea and could take the fact that he was a leader and in essence apply the resources to help make it happen because it, it, no matter how how compelled you feel and no matter how well you can explain what you're doing no matter how good your theory is 
if you're trying to change an organization, you need somebody with resource, control of the resources to be able to help you do that. So if you don't have control of the resources, it, you know, it, 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 you might be able to do something in your little corner, but you're not going to transform the organization because the, the resources, you don't have control of the resources to make it happen. But I think it, it, it's also demonstrating that um, you don't need to be a personality to be a leader, as, as in, you know, the sort of things that would be where examples would be taken from the military or, or um, presidents or, or other people like that. What he what Deming is demonstrating is that if you are doing something based on a, on a theory and it is going to do good, and you see it through and you have a way of doing it that is a different that can be anybody that doesn't have to be someone who's born to the role or in a position of authority and is therefore a leader by by um things that don't actually matter yeah uh, along those lines uh, i think it is an example of um you know the first step being the transformation of the individual and I'll now sleep into chapter six, but I find it interesting that it's drawing more on knowledge and personality and persuasive power rather than authority of office. Yeah, in his case, he didn't have any authority, so he couldn't draw on that. There's an interesting comment that sometimes confuses folks. On page 120, where, he's, where Deming offers that sampling increased the accuracy of the results. The, the typical perception is that sampling decreases the accuracy. And I, I'm not sure why that's the common perception, but I, I've seen that perception elsewhere. And one of the examples I used to help folks understand how sampling might be way more accurate so if I gave you somewhere between <clears throat> a million and uh, a million one hundred thousand pennies to count, and I said count them and tell me tell me how many there are, if you did a count one at a time, you'd get a result. My confidence in that result might not be all that strong. You'd have a number, but I don't know how many times you'd have to count it in order for us to decide that you got the same number five times in a row or whatever it was to decide that was the number. On the other hand, you could pull out a thousand of them, count them up, make sure you have a thousand or pull out a hundred, count up, make sure you have a hundred and then weigh them and take that weight and then weigh the whole mass of pennies and then use the weight of a hundred to divide into the whole weight and say, okay, that number times 100 is how many pennies I have. You're likely to be more accurate than counting them individually. Because the count of million, 100,000 pennies is going to take you several days. I, I used to have to count ammunition on a, on a regular basis to make sure that it was accurate. And you'd be amazed how many times, even with two of us doing it, how many times we had to do it to make sure that we actually got it right. Wow. Yep. And, and that was physically counting bullets out. And there'd be two of us doing it. And there'd be a ledger balance. And the number of times we'd be one or two out and have to do it again. And you'd think it would be a very easy thing to do. 
Well, yeah, and, and, and what's interesting is the people that write about human error and publish data on it, it's amazing that we tend not to recognize that human error is, is, a, is a bigger percentage of what goes on than you ever would think. And, and I think things, simple things like going around and checking a valve to see if it's in the on position or off position. And that the, 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 the human error rate on that is, is, is better than 1%. And you're looking at the valve and you're saying, well, how, how could it not be 99.9%? And it's partly how the human brain works and how everything interacts with it. Um, another example is if you're adding up a column, and I don't remember how many numbers were in the column, six or seven. If you're adding up a column of six or seven numbers without a calculator, you're just adding those numbers. Or what you find is the error rate is like 3%. They say, wow, it doesn't seem like it ought to be that high. Then you start asking yourself the question, what about way more complicated things like welding things together that go in a rocket engine? If the human error rate in these simple things is, you know, 1% to 3%, and with a lot of things, it's closer to 82 or 83%. And recognizing that and having an understanding of the system allows you to say, given that, what do I need to put in place in the system to make up for the fact that my error rate's gonna be 5%. So I can't count on it being 100%. How do I protect everything downstream from the 5% error rate? And the typical solution is we're firing that guy and getting a guy that's more like 99%. That's <laughs> yeah. not really and there's always some guy that's willing to promise you that my error rate's going to be way better than the last guy. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's interesting. I was in a conversation last week where we're, we're trying to locate crashes. So, you know, infrastructure investments of millions of dollars, you know, you can easily spend millions, you know, very quickly on uh, roadway elements. And we were talking about how the data is being located for the crashes um, with respect to the GIS location. And it, <laughs> it turns out each crash report, so New Jersey has 300,000 crash reports a year approximately that are filled out by police officers on the scene. And as is not, I'm sure, surprisable or surprising rather, many times those reports are illegible or the information's not quite complete. So when a locator, an individual um, checking the record finds that the location is, is not clear on the report, they know what route it is, they know around what mileposts, but they don't know where within the stretch of a mile, they always put it at the beginning of the mile. <laughs> So, you know, here we are, we're screening the entire network and prioritizing locations based on frequencies of crashes and, you know, not knowing that the system is, is always um, biasing 
unlocatable crashes to the beginning of every milepost. <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It, recognizing that, that's a good question too. Uh, Wheeler talks about that. He said, data is only understandable in its context. And if you can't get the context for the data, you shouldn't trust it. But you've discovered some context with the data, which means you can trust it to the, to the based on your understanding, you can trust trust it to the level of, well, okay, <laughs> unlocatable is within a mile, which might might not be all that useful if you're trying to figure out if which one of the three bridges in the, that mile stretch is the problem. Exactly. It's a bit like recently where the um, the result of an election has not been like the prediction of the polls. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and it all depends on, you know, what was the question that you were asking? Who were you asking? But mm -hmm. because of our because it's sort of like prepared for news broadcasts and it's short term and it, it didn't really matter to a certain extent until they got 10 percentage points out and and something like Brexit happens and comes as a shock. Yep. Well, and their Deming points out some of the some of the difficulty with with collecting the data has to do with the training of the people that are collecting the data, and 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 as you point out, the the way you ask the questions and the questions you ask, and so what could happen is if you're if you're doing an interview and you ask the guy what paper he read this morning. And he doesn't want to be embarrassed by saying it was, you know, the National Enquirer. So he gives you a false name of right. some paper that makes him look more important to the interviewer. And so you you get data, but the question is, is the data predictive of anything? How do you know that the, the one of the things you have to test, and it takes some time. And that's why, as you point out, when they're doing these these on-the-fly polls, they don't have necessarily time to do the studies you have to check and see if when you're getting a certain answer to a question same meaning you sir has the fact that the guy marked the answer and you say well i know what that means well his meaning may have been way different from yours but he chose that answer and if you don't understand the variation associated with with the response you get 10 responses to that one item, and they're all the same response. But if you could talk to the people individually, you'd find out there are at least three different things going on there. So it's not all one response, it's three different responses. But you may not know that because of the way you've designed the question. And it takes quite a bit of work to design a survey and check out the questions so that you, you can validate that they're constructed properly. And the data you get is is going to be consistent enough to tell you what you're trying to learn. I I, I know that quite well. One of the questions I usually ask my my leadership coaches is uh, Deming's famous thought experiment: or, um, if we had a national survey, are you in favor of quality? Yes or no? And that immediately provokes a question around: What do you mean by quality? Um, Deming's definition is fine, um, but for a lot of people, they are quite stuck. If you ask them to independently define for you what quality means to them, very, very difficult. Yeah, it, it, 
along those lines, not exactly it. Myron Tribus, when he visited here, when we were part of Boeing, he was coming to a management association meeting in the evening. He said, well, can he come in the, in the, during the day and walk around the, the facility? And we said, sure. So he came in and we scheduled him to have lunch with anybody who wanted to come. We invited executives and managers first, but it was anybody who wanted to come. And the only executive that showed up was the vice president of quality that I reported to. I, I don't know. If, I don't remember badgering him to be there, but maybe felt he had an obligation. And anyway, he was there. Myron was going around the table with about eight or nine people at the table and asking the people there, what do you do that contributes to quality here? And each one of them would say something. When he got to this executive, this VP, the VP starts telling him what the quality organization does, and Myron let him go on for about 20 seconds. He misunderstood my question. My question is, what are you doing, not what is your organization doing? And the, the VP received it quite well and said, okay, oh, yeah, okay, I get you. And so he offered some things. There are other executives who probably would have thrown something at Myron, but but it is a very different question. What is your organization doing? What are you doing? Brilliant. I, I, was, I was going to offer it, the, the, the thing being that quality often is, is assumed, you know, people don't go into the definition of it. And I know this links into the need for operational um, definitions in order to get it right. Similar thing with safety. I mean, people will bandy the word around. Yes. But when you actually ask them what do you mean by it, um, it, 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 it holds them up because they, they, they don't consider it. Excellent example. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Well, and it's so funny because as a highway safety engineer, over and over, the folks in operations, of course, are interested in good flow rates and keeping the traffic moving nice and quickly. and. Not, nobody having to stop at any of the signals, things of that nature. And I'll go into a room of operations engineers and traffic engineers, and I'll say congestion is a safety engineer's best friend. Because when no one's moving, usually no one's killed. <laughs> and they, it works every time. They all drop their jaws in shock and horror. <laughs> We're so off time saying that, you know, they want to make the improvement for safety, and quite the opposite ends up being the outcome, unfortunately. So I, I appreciate the comment about safety because that's an ongoing challenge. <laughs> you, you talked about the traffic flow and the concern about flow. I think it was Dan Rather who said that Americans will put up with just about anything except blocking the traffic. Yes. <laughs> that gets them up in arms right away. Yeah. But I mean, I got four lanes and nobody's moving. <laughs> yeah. You know, and they always say safety first. And I always say, well, no one calls the mayor at the end of the day and says, thank you for helping me get home safely. But you can be sure if they sat three cycles through a traffic signal, they're calling the mayor complaining that the traffic signal's not working right. That's for sure. Thank you all for joining in the conversation. I, I had some fun and learned some things, so that's always good for me. Um, 
Uh, Wednesday, I'll, I'll get something out today, including we'll try to get the, if we don't get it posted today soon, we'll get this session posted. I was having trouble getting uh, the first session posted, but I think we got that resolved and we'll try to post that one. We did post the one from uh, Wednesday, so I think that's available if you want to listen again uh, or listen for the first time if you weren't a participant. So uh, when we get together Wednesday, we're going to look at management of people, which is chapter six, and we're going to look at something that is related to the management of people. In fact, Deming calls it the experiment, a, 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 an example of bad management. And that's chapter seven, the, chap with the uh, chapter on the red beads, the experiment with the red beads. Please join us in the New Economic Study Sessions. Register today at www.deming.org and click on Events. If you can't attend or want to catch up, the Deming Institute will provide edited versions of each session through iTunes or at podcast.deming.org.